Hello, welcome to Neilan Not Standing. This I'm joined by the one and only Paulie Malinaji, all the way over in New York. Paulie, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? Good, not a bother, yeah. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for giving up your time to have a chat. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, well, I suppose uh, from I'll take you right back to your early days, um, your days in Sicily. And for, for people who don't know, uh, you grew up in Sicily. So tell us, I suppose, your story from how you, uh, from Italy to America and all in between. Yeah, my uh, my grandparents, my mom's parents moved to the U.S. Uh, three years before I was born. And my mom moved with them. She was a teenager. and uh, But she was still dating my father. So she ended up going back to Italy and got married to my father. And uh, my father played in a Serie C uh, football. So after a season in um, 80-81, I was born in the fall of 81. After a season in 80-81, um, no, uh, yeah, no, 79-80 season. 70, after the 79-80 season, um, they decided they were going to come to America. Um, my father got a contract in Mexico to play for a year over there. So uh, my mom was pregnant with me when they moved in August of 1980. And I was born in November, so I was born in the U.S. But uh, after the season in June, uh, my my father got a contract back in back in Italy. So uh, we mo- we ended up going back to uh, to Sicily. We ended up going back to Sicily uh, in the summer of '81. So I was born in New York, but my uh, we ended up going back to Sicily, and uh, that's where I spent the the, the majority of my uh, my my first six years. Uh, we would come back every summer to visit my mom's parents because my father wasn't playing in the summers. And, uh, you know, before when the season would get started in September, you know, before September, we know it's in the pre-camps and whatnot, we would uh, we would head back to Italy. So so I, I, I grew up in Sicily, but I was still familiar with uh, with the States because I was here every summer until I was six years old. At six years old, we moved back to the United States when my father stopped playing football. Yeah, so I was speaking to you just off off air there, and we were just kind of talking about football and stuff like that. And you were saying that you actually have more love for football and stuff like that. Probably something that people don't know about you unless they, you know, they really, really know you. You know, especially from maybe an yeah. Irish audience, a lot of people would know you from, you know, the stuff of the feud with kind of McGregor and and Archman stuff yeah. like that. But they probably don't know that you're a huge football fan. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I wound up in boxing, I guess, because in in the states, you wind up, you know in other sports and whatnot. Um, so I, I just kind of stumbled into boxing as a teenager. I was a little bit of a troubled kid, but um, I always loved football. That was always my favorite sport. Uh, it's funny because in the United States, uh, even as a kid, we had this Italian channel in Northeast called, uh, well, it's Rai. Well, Rai is also uh, in Italy as well, but there was like an international Rai channel and uh, you, you could get it uh, in the States. Uh, in the Northeast, you could anyway. I don't know if you could get it in the rest of, this, of the United States, but I know you get it in the Northeast and it was in it. They spoke in Italian, uh, and you would get all the you would get one league game, one Serie A game per Sunday morning. So at the time, they were all on Sunday morning. Not like today, where they spread them out for TV contracts. So at Sunday mornings, I would you know they would give you the best Serie A game of that week. You know, like whatever, what whichever one was on the schedule that was the best one. You would, so you would get one, and that's it. Uh, but they, at that time, they were all at the same time anyway. But we didn't have any. I, it was no options to say, oh, I want to watch this other game or this other game. It was the one you'd get. But it was typically the best Serie A game of that week. They usually put that one on. And that was on in the morning. And then about 1 o'clock in the afternoon um, on the same ride channel, which was 6, 7 o'clock at night in Italy, we would get the, what was called the Noventesimo Minuto. Noventesimo Minuto was the highlight show uh, for all the games. You know, So I would I remember I would watch 
Sunday morning, I'd watch the game. And then I'd watch the Novetesimo Minuto at one o'clock where I get all the highlights of all the other games. And uh, that was that was my routine. Uh, like I said, I love football. Uh, you'd get a, a UEFA Cup game during the week. Um, even even Cup Winners Cup on Thursdays, uh, the Champions Cup on, uh, on Wednesday at the time. It was called Champions Cup, not Champions League. And the Champions Cup, um, it ended up going to ESPN when it became the Champions League. And then we lost it on right. We ended up, we had to get the English broadcasts uh, because ESPN got the contract in the in the early to mid nineties, you know, so then we would get the, when, when it became the champions league. And so, uh, uh, that went off of arrival. We'd still get a, a way for cup game. We'd get a cup winners cup. Uh, I can remember, you know, watching all those, all those as a kid, uh, on that ride channel. I can still remember, um, like vague, like randomly, I have like random memories. I can remember like, uh, the second leg of the Juventus Barcelona, uh, semifinal of the 91 Cup Winners Cup because we would only get the home games. So uh, so I remember the the away leg in Barcelona, uh, Juve had lost at 3-1 and I, and I didn't get to see it because, you know, the game was in Barcelona and we'd have the Italian newspaper. So knowing that uh, Juve had lost the uh, away leg, I remember watching the uh, second leg and we got it on, you know, because they were home, they put it on on that Italian channel. So you would, you would struggle to get your football matches, but you'd get them. You know, if you knew how to, if you know how to follow it, you'd get them. <laughs> and it was, uh, it, I remember you won that game one, one nil with a, with a Roberto Baggio free kick and around the 60th minute. But, but, um, it wasn't enough. And I remember Barca, I remember Barca ended up going through and, uh, then they lost the final to Man United in the final. I remember that. So, so yeah, so there's right in the memories, you know, it was, but at the time, Serie A was so good. So it was so good to watch. So it was really, uh, the best time for Serie A, and uh, at that time, I remember thinking like, "Oh, I'm so I'm so fortunate that the Italian league is the best league in the world." Thinking that that's always going to be the reality. Like you don't realize at that age that things change. <laughs> so I just yeah, remember thinking, cycle, "This is yeah. so cool." Yeah, yeah. And so you know, I, I, I my first memories of football are you know with a very powerful Italian national team. Which ended up winning nothing, ironically. You know, with such a great generation of Italian football players that didn't even win anything. Uh, they have a, an 88 semifinal in the European Cup, uh, a 90 semifinal in the World Cup, and then a 94 final loss in the World Cup as well. We didn't, that, that, but that was, those are you know, my, the first generation I watched in football. Though, that was a, a great generation, both um, for Italy and Italian, the Italian league, Serie A, and the national team, as well as just the time to watch Serie A, even with the terrific foreign players that were coming to play there. Yeah, even even like I was born in the ni- in 1990, and and the players that came in during the 90s were unbelievable as well. So like through that period of yeah. the 80s and 90s, I think more so the 90s was a bigger kind of spell for the Serie A in terms of like you had Ronaldo, and then you obviously had yeah. you, you know I know before that yeah. you had Maradona, but then you have like Vieri, you had probably the best strikers. Yeah, yeah. No, it- I tell you, Italy went through a, a, a real golden period um, and it was literally started. I, I had no idea at the time. It, it literally started right when I started watching football. I started watching sports in general that I could follow along and, and understand, understand in 1988. And I can remember, you know, Euro 88, Italy was a good team. Uh, the, the Serie A was a terrific league. And uh, the Italian teams were doing very, very well in Europe. Of course, I did not know there was the the, the ban on the English teams. So that would have been interesting looking back now. Yeah, well, I, I didn't understand that. Fan, right? so. Yeah, I didn't. And you guys really got screwed as an Edmonton fan because yeah. uh, I think in '85 you guys won the, the 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 championship in England, and 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 you didn't get to go to the Champions Cup the next year, right? Yeah. So that was right before my time. But you know what's funny? It still plays into it because my mother. We lived in Italy when the Heisel disaster happened, and my mother in her craziness or overprotectiveness 
didn't want me to attend live football matches as a kid. So when the 94 World Cup came in America, this is still an unforgivable, I love my mom to death, but this is unforgivable. My grandfather and my uncles all were going to every Italy game in the 94 World Cup, no matter where. They were following Italy all over the country. And they they told my mom, like, yo, uh, you know, we got a ticket for your son, for, for Paulie and, and my, my brother. Let, let, let us take the kids with us. And my mom was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to risk a, a, a riot happening like in Heisel. You know, there was kids that, you know, never came home. I, I mean, absolutely ridiculous, absolutely maddening because – in 94, Italy was, uh, you know, Italy had, uh, I mean, the heart attack kind of a World Cup because we opened up the World Cup losing to Ireland and so then risking not even getting out of the group. But it went from it went from that drastic disaster to reaching the final. So it was quite a month for my uncles and my grandfather. They made some memories for themselves. I had to watch it all on TV. Yeah, that like th- that period is still kind of because Ireland had just not really done that much in terms of football over the years since uh, probably 2002 World Cup. And the Euros then in 2016. We always seem to have some weird thing where we beat Italy. I know the last time we played, it was kind of more of a B team that we beat in, in 2016. But uh, I suppose, um, did you ever have a soft spot? Yeah, no, but Ireland, you know, they're a capable team. Honestly, Ireland always, you know, it, it's not like you don't get a, a, a gimme. It's Ireland is never a gimme game. Even if you got to beat Ireland, you got to play. You know, you. I remember in 90, you guys got to the, semi to the quarters we Italy beat you guys in the quarters but yeah. it's crazy because you didn't win a game <laughs> you got all all draws in 90 and then you beat Romania in the in the in a, in a shootout in the second round and that Romania team was pretty good that Romania team I believe they, they they won the group with Argentina or they came in second place I don't remember that was a good Romania team you guys beat in penalty kicks yeah and then uh and then we beat you. save yeah 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 and then and then we beat you one nil uh but it was uh it was a it was a tough it was a top four game it was a hard four game. Yeah, they still talk um, about Paul McGrath's performance in that game. Yeah, yeah, because that was a very good Italy team. I tell you, the '90 team. It's funny because when I talk about the the t- national teams that I've watched, now I'm old enough now to like be able to like talk like an old man about football. <laughs> like I, I go back you know, over thirty years. I tell you, I watched Italy win a World Cup in 2006. I watched Italy win a European Cup last summer, uh, uh, summer of 2021. The best Italy team I've ever seen is the 1990 World Cup team. I mean, it's that is such a shame. I mean, what a team! It's just, but and you guys played us very, very tough in the quarterfinals. I tell you, you know, very, 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 very well done. Very, very well done. Mm, and then four years later, generous. you beat it. Four years later, I finally got to talk to Ray Houghton recently. Somebody had a, a I forgot who it was. Uh, um, I forgot who it was that had his number. They called. It was either somebody in boxing in England, and they uh, they they said, "Oh, Houghton." I was like, uh, I, I know him, you know, and because and I, I was talking about how the, I was talking to him about there's no way he meant to hit that ball like that. You know, if you watch <laughs> yeah. that, that goal, it hits off his shin and takes a backspin and it does like a it floats over Paliuka. And because it's on a backspin, it just drops dead and goes into the net, you know. And I remember talking to my talking to I forgot. I, you know, what's crazy. I can't remember who I was talking to, but I remember, I've had this conversation with so many people in my life that, you know, it, it's like it's on repeat mode. And I, I always say there's no way how meant to hit the ball like that. <laughs> he missed hit the ball and he scored, you know, and and he's like, oh, I'll call him. And so, and so he calls him up and I was like, you caused me a lot of misery with that goal. And I, I told him, uh, you didn't mean to eat that ball like that. No way. And he and he said, and he kind of, I could tell the sarcasm in his voice. He was saying, yeah, of course I meant to hit that ball. But he was kind of like joking around with it, like half admitting, like, you know, he mishit it too. But it came out perfectly. You miss, Sometimes you mishit it, it comes out perfectly. 
<laughs> yeah, he's a great he's a great guy, and I don't think he's ever had to buy a drink. He's a great player too, honestly. He didn't go. He's a great player too. I didn't. I didn't because at the time, like I said, I would only follow the Serie A. Even now, I'm mainly a Serie A guy. But but at the time, I was only watching Serie A. The only time I would watch international teams, uh, you know, teams from other leagues play was in the European competitions. And at the time, we didn't have like the TV contracts we have now. Where in this in the US, you can basically watch any league you want. So you know, I didn't realize you know hadn't the career hadn't had you know as a Liverpool player and all that. He was a he wasn't just he's not just the guy that scored on Italy in '94 yeah, World Cup. That was a very good, good player. Good you know, he, he's probably yeah. down as as one of our best ever players on that right hand side. Did you yeah. ever get to see Liam Brady? Obviously, went to Juventus and was magnificent for them, and he won the the league, scored the, that famous penalty when he knew he was leaving. Did you ever get to see any of that? What, what year was that? What year was that? It was, uh, I think it was in the 80s. Um, I'm not too sure. Early 80s. Maybe no, no. It was, it, was before, yeah, it was before me then. It was before me. When I started watching football, I started in 88 and Milan won the Serie A. I didn't see Juve win a, win a Serie A title until 95, you know? And Juve was a, a, a team that had the most Serie A titles. I think they still do have the most Serie A titles, but... But it was sort of a... a I wouldn't say a dead period because Juve won a, won a UEFA Cup in that time. As well, in uh, eighty, uh, I think in ninety, in ninety, they won a UEFA Cup, um, but but it wasn't the best period for Juve in, in compare in terms of how good the Serie A was and what some other teams were doing. Like Milan was dominating, Inter won a Scudetto, um, Napoli won a couple of Scudettos at that time. So Juve kind of was playing second fiddle, but despite that, they were playing still playing well, and then they were very competitive in Europe. But I, I didn't see Brady. No, he, um, he, I'm just reading on his Wikipedia. So he was at Juventus from eighty to eighty two. Sampdoria from yeah, 80, wait, 82 days. I was around. That was when I was just born. <laughs> yeah. I just thought you just because it's that little link, just like Houghton was there. So I just thought you might have maybe he played for Inter, yeah. Inter and Ascoli as well uh, before he went back to um, West Ham. Uh, it's funny. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I probably my grandfather, my grandfather is a diehard Juventus fan. He's, he's, he's 86 years old. My grandfather can still remember the starting lineup for the first UBA team he ever rooted for, like around 1950 or something. He's, I, I tell him sometimes I mess with him. I say, I say, give me the lineup. And he just gives it, he runs off all 11 starting guys, you know, <laughs> like a 1950, 1951 team, you know? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say he was probably a big uh, Brady fan. Your dad probably played against Liam Brady, I would say, maybe at some point. Well, I don't know. If it, my father played in the lower league, so he was in Serie C. So mm -hmm. I don't know if, if Brady was Copa. playing at a league level like Serie A team, you know, or maybe in the Coppa Italia or something, you know, because at that time the 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 uh, the top teams could play the lower level teams in the in the in the, in the preliminary rounds of the of the Coppa Italia. Things change, man. Football change because now now the the now the, they make the the bad teams play each other, uh, and then the top teams kind of get buys. To the later rounds, you don't stop playing the top teams. Until the later rounds, but at the time, the Coppa Italia, I think everybody just played everybody, you know, and eliminated each other one at a time. Now there's too many games, so they, they save the top teams for later, you know, because those top teams already have enough big games to play. Yeah, and then obviously the internationals then pile up on top of that as well. But uh, yeah, exactly. Italy, and, uh, Italy's strange though, aren't they? Because like they go to win the Euros and then you know the, the, the like then they don't make the world cup which is strange because he would have yeah. thought they would have been in there you know and they're really? a really good team and I, was, I love the fact they beat england then as well in the final that was re that was really good i was so irritated i tell you i was so irritated because it hasn't been the best hasn't been the best decade past decade for us but in the mean in the meantime we've had a couple of good performances we won a european cup last year and and even in 2016, when we had Conte in the European Cup, we, that was a that was a pretty good team. You know, we lost uh, we lost to Germany in a, in a in a in a penalty kick shootout, but Conte had them playing very well. Then we had uh, we had Ventura coaching us, who was absolutely clueless, and we didn't make the 2018 World Cup. And then uh, 
after that, we, you know, man, with Mancini, we were clearly, clearly a, a different level. You know, the, he was getting the best out of all players. And then I don't know, man. And Vialli so, as you know, well, who unfortunately passed away. It, 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 it's also, it's also it very, very unfortunate with Vialli. Rest in peace. That was a very good, good, good footballer. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you something. Um, the the uh, the fact that Italy just not qualifying for the World Cup. It also comes down to Europe. Everybody always. I got like lines over here in America telling me like Common Bowl is the hardest qualification. No way, because you still get five spots in one big group. So you can you can have a subpar performance here and there. You'll still come in fourth place and qualify for the World Cup. In Europe, you have to win your group or you go to a playoff. So you can't have too many subpar performances or you wind up in a playoff or you wind up not even qualifying at all. You know, so so that's what happened with Italy. Italy drew too many games in qualifying. You know, that's that lazy, stupid mentality. Drew too many games in qualifying. And, and the Swiss got passes. We were undefeated in qualifying. We, we drew too many games. And then Macedonia happened, which... Is it inexplicable? We've 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 had a Macedonia moment as well. In fact, one of our players had to go around wearing if they if they had a bad game in training, they had to wear a T-shirt saying, "I had a Macedonia." Because uh, an we had result. we had a Macedonia too. Yeah, so there you go. But it's funny. I I always there's there's always some sort of link between the Italians and 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 Ireland at competitions when they get to the same competitions. Like I think yeah yeah we we've been we've, we've come for, across each other. Yeah, we come across each other a lot. We come across each other a good bit, actually. You know, yeah, it's funny because I think I think in '94 when you guys got out of the group, when you got you ended up against Holland, and Holland, I think they were in your qualifying group for the World Cup, and because of you and Holland, England hadn't qualified for the '94 World Cup because of Ireland and Holland, and then you ended up catching Holland in the second round of the of the World Cup, and uh, I think they I think they won the game two 0 if I remember correctly. It was one bad goal Bonner let in, it went off his hands or something. I have a weird memory of football, man. I remember some crazy, like, distinct moments. You remember the Scalacci goal? Which one? The 90 Scalacci. goal against Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Donadoni with the initial shot. Rebound saved by uh, Bonner. And then Scalacci rebound. Scalacci was a goal hulk, man. I mean, he was right. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny because it's funny because he was in double last week. To talk was he? about it, yeah. Right. Yeah, but I tell you, if you watch Scalacci's goal against Ireland and the one against Argentina, the the next game in the semi, it's basically the same thing. The initial shot saved, and he's right there for the rebound. You know, uh, I think against Ireland, Donadoni took the shot, and 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 Bonner rebound uh, saved it and went right to spell right to Scalacci who scored. And then in the next game against Argentina, it was Viali who took the shot and uh, uh, fell right to Scalacci who put it in. So Scalacci had such a knack. He was he, he was such a knack for for where to be, man. Well, really a, a hawk for that, you know. Yeah, something that Ireland really badly needs. Plus, plus, a, plus a good Sicilian. <laughs> yeah, like yourself. I suppose. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll jump back on to you because I think if we if we continue on football, we'll end up talking for hours about it, and we'll we'll, we'll kind of yeah. skip over you. So yeah. I suppose we'll bring it back yeah. to you because this is why we got you on, and obviously you can have your football references without doubt in, mm-hmm. in this whole podcast. By by all means, do. Mm-hmm. But I suppose tell us mm-hmm. about your your upbringing, then moving to um, was it New York? Was it Brooklyn? You moved to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I went into, you know, my first years of my life. Then uh, my, my parents uh, decided they were going to move to the States. Uh, my father was done playing football. And uh, my my grandparents were already in the States in Brooklyn, uh, my mom, my mom's parents. And uh, so we, we came here. Well, my father and my mom didn't get along. They were they were already kind of on their way out in the marriage. And uh, I, I think uh, after a little while that my father was here, he just didn't, you know, I think just things didn't work out. So he ended up going back to Italy and, uh, and that was it, you know. So I just, uh, you know, um, at that point, you know, we just, we were here in the States. My father was back in Italy and, you know, kind of lost touch. 
for a little bit. My mom got remarried, you know, things happened, but, um, I kind of lost my way a little bit in all that time. And, um, ultimately, uh, you know, I wound up in boxing as a 16 year old, as a, yeah, 16 year old wound up in boxing and, um, and the rest kind of just took a shape of its own, you know, but from that point, from six to 16, it would just kind of started going downhill a little bit by a little bit for me personally, because, you know, I was just making bad decisions and growing up a sort of, you know, I, no excuses, but you know, you get yourself into some, ah, some young, bad young situation. Young, dumb, and just confused, you know, looking for a, think you're going to make your own answers and, and don't have to listen to anybody, you know. Um, probably needed some better guidance. I'll tell you that? what, though, boxing came home. I had a good time. My grandfather made sure I got to a boxing gym when I got kicked out of school. And uh, he uh, had my uncle take me. And uh, and from there, just kind of started to be rewritten. You know, my, my path kind of sort of changed and for the better. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, was it the fact that, you, you know, you obviously your dad was was back home and you didn't have maybe to answer to him. I don't know what he was like, you know, for you growing up. Was he like authoritative or whatever that maybe you were lacking that? I also know that you, you didn't speak English going over there. So was that tough? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it took me, you know, once I, luckily I was there at six years old. So I, while I didn't speak English, I had two advantages. Number one, I was young enough to learn English. And number two, my community was so Italian that, you know, there was a lot of Italian at that oh, time. Yeah. That part of uh, that part of Brooklyn had a lot of Italians. Uh, it's actually Italian and Irish, to tell you the truth. Mainly Italians, and um, that was kind of good for me. And but also going to school, I, I I learned English. You know, within a year or so, you know, because at six years old, you're 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 picking it up. You're 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 sitting with you know you you starting to use a language. You're watching TV. You're watching your cartoons and all that stuff. And everything's in English, and you're uh, you pick it up. So I mean, I'd say at, at this point, English is my first language. Um, but at that time, you know, uh, I had to learn. Yeah, I suppose people look at you and they think you're American, but you are actually Italian. Like that's you, you were brought up there. I know. Yeah, then well, you became pretty much Italian American, but you actually yeah would be Italian. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you know people don't know my story, so they think uh, I'm just full on American. But like I said, my my parents actually came to the U.S. for the first time when my mom was six months pregnant with me. So. And then they went back when I was about seven months pregnant, when I was about seven months old, you know? So, so, um, you know, my four, my first foray into the States didn't last long. I was just born and then went back to Italy yeah. <laughs> and then I came back later. I actually have a younger brother. Um, my, my parents had another child, so I have a younger brother. Um, and he's born in Sicily, you know, because he was born, you know, after that when we were living there, you know? Yeah. But he also lives in the States now, obviously. So obviously back and forth. You you still go back and forth there now, do you? Yeah, I didn't go back from eighty six to two thousand because you know I kind of lost touch with my father and all that stuff. And you know, you know, in ninety eight I kind of got back in touch with my father, and so I started to go back. Starting in two thousand, I started to go back regularly to Italy, and I've been back, you know, various various times since then. You know, I've I've even you know it's funny because then in my boxing career I've even gotten to do some media stuff over there in Italy. You know talk shows and you know appearances on sports talk shows and whatnot so it's been pretty cool it's, it's worked out and also the fact that i was able to retain the ability to speak italian uh, also helped out so that i'm able to i was able to do uh, uh you know stuff in italy with the media and just promotion wise and whatnot so it was pretty cool yeah that's brilliant um no so i was doing my research there and i suppose this will bring it into because you spoke there about you know the two thousands and you were trying to get yourselves into the sorry the 2000 olympics so when did your boxing what year did your boxing career start because I, I know you kind of got into it as your teenage years which is traditionally quite late for yeah. a boxer yeah i got it i got into it at 16 years old and in 2000 i was trying to make the olympic team and so i thought i thought maybe um i could 
grab Italian, grab uh, try to grab a spot on the Italian team. But uh, unfortunately, the Italian embassies they don't work very quickly. They still don't work very quickly, and so the uh, the the paperwork and the this the uh, the bureaucracy of trying to get my Italian passport wasn't working out, and so I wasn't able to do it. Uh, so I turned pro in two thousand one, and then uh, I ended up getting an Italian passport later. I wanted an an EU EBU title at, towards the end of my boxing career. I was trying to position myself for the EBU title which is the European Championship, uh, where you have to be an Italian citizen. I was trying to kind of use that as like a little bit of a springboard to try to get me back when I when I had already fallen off of the world-class level, you know. And uh, it didn't work out because it was very end of my boxing career, but it was pretty cool. I, and now, you know, at this point, I have dual citizenship. But, you know, it, it, like I said, it, always, it was always cool. You know, it was always cool. I, I, I always had sort of a... Uh, a uh, a bit of a presence on the Italian boxing scene as well in Italy because I like I said because I speak Italian so they I was more uh, I was also more or less in on, on that scene as well. Yeah, um, well, I was just on your on your I suppose I, got, I just want to get a run through of your I suppose your your boxing career. So you had the fight with for the light welterweight title, the WBO against Mikael Cotto, who was you know basically the biggest puncher in the division um, and you fought in that fight with a broken or- orbital bone so, and you continued to fight mm. that fight um, mm. talk to me about that fight and your you know your mentality going into it yeah it was the first world well, t- championship fight you know you, you don't get into boxing to just be a, a club fighter or just an average guy you know and so I had made my, my rounds through the amateurs and through the pro ranks I had been through some injuries with my hands so I had been some frustrating times but I had managed to stay undefeated and and work my way up the ladder. So, you know, when you get that call to fight for a world title, you know, it's not really about the opponent. It's about the uh, the chance to be a world champion, which is you know, everybody's dream when they start boxing. So, uh, you know, I was excited. Um, there was anxiety. There was nerves. Uh, I knew Koda was very, very good. But I also looked at him as a kid who was my age. We are basically the same age, me and Koda. So I looked at him like, okay, yeah, he's very good, but he's my age. I, I shouldn't have any I shouldn't have any extra respect for him. He's just one of my peers. But, um, you know, Looking back and everything, you know, it was a tough fight. I lost a 12-round decision. It was a big learning experience. Broke my overbone in the process. But um, it was certainly, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't have known at the time, but he wound up being the best fighter I ever fought in my boxing career. And I fought a lot of very good fighters. Yeah, because I think Mayweather had said he was the biggest puncher in the division as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think Mayweather said he gave him the toughest fight of his career too. I mean, Miguel was a, a very, very good fighter, very, very good thinker, uh, knew how to put you, put you in bad positions, kept a lot of pressure on you, a lot of stress on you. And the fact that he was a big puncher also didn't help uh, the cause, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, but it didn't stop you. You still went the whole way with him. Um, mm-hmm. Just on there, so you, you, you went on then to fight in Doe um, and then you bet him and, and then you had to defend the belt against him then as well. So talk to us about, I suppose, mm-hmm. those kind of fights and, and that yeah. period yeah what end though was uh you know i was a bit um you know now there was more nerves because i lost my first chance at a world title so a year later i got the shot at endo for the ibf world title and, and i had seen endo fight against kodo and now having been in the ring with kodo i knew how tough he was how strong he was and having seen the endo and kodo fight which was a real real good give and take fight where kodo won on points but it was a razor razor close fight i said oh my goodness man you know i've got another guy like kodo on my hands you know this is gonna be a tough fight you know because he was an all-out pressure guy with a great chin who really stressed you physically and mentally. But um, I believe the uh, experience with Cotto really helped me out. Technically, he was not as good as Cotto. He was a physically, you know, he was a very physical guy and, and a pressure guy, but he wasn't technically as good as Cotto. And so 
the mentality I had for the Cotto fight, which was, you know, really put me in a different level mentally for these kind of fights, I think really helped me out. I, I brought it into the Endo fight. And once Endo couldn't match up physically uh, from a talent level, the way Cotto was from a technical and talent level, um, all his effort wasn't going to matter. You know, I was able to outbox him despite the pressure he put on. And uh, it was a it was a good win for me. You know, it, was, it accomplished uh, one of the big, big dreams. It, 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 it ticked off one of the boxes and uh, one of the boxes that I had in mind to try to, you know, accomplish and uh we went from there but it was certainly a big moment for me yeah i think a, a lot of people who obviously get into boxing well i think everybody who gets into boxing that's what they set out to achieve as a as a world title i suppose you came out and you said that you didn't really appreciate the first one till you got the second one um why yeah. was that did you just feel like you had earned it or what way were you thinking um yeah i just felt like i always felt like i was gonna be a world champion you know so i was like i felt like it was like it was like what was what was expected of me. I felt like, you know, it wasn't uh, some, it, it was a really, don't get me wrong, it felt terrific to be a world champion. To, but it also was like, it wasn't something that shocked me. Like, I always put it on myself to, you know, I have, I'm going to be a world champion. I used to tell people, you know, even people thought I was crazy when I first started boxing, but I was something that I'd always expected of myself. So I didn't, ex I, I couldn't appreciate it as much as I should have because it, it was, it was just, for me, it was par for the course. But once I realized, I went through all the in-between after that, we're losing the title and have going having the up and down career in between before winning the second title. I realized, you know, how difficult this really is. You know, um, the first time around, the difficulties was more in dealing with dealing with the injuries. Yes, I lost the Cotto fight, but I still felt like I was up to par to become a world champion. Uh, but um, it was just mainly the injuries. So I felt like it was that if it wasn't for myself, I'd. I'd it's, it's, I can do this again, you know, but in reality, uh, between the first and second world title, there was a lot of ups and downs. And really, I learned how difficult it really is. You know, you, you almost get there. I lost a world title fight to Amir Khan. I had to start over again. Uh, and then finally, I was able to win it in 2012. And so you you really appreciate it because, you know, that that second one, I appreciated it more because it was I, I started realizing nothing. You can't take anything for granted. Nothing you should. Nothing is a given, you know, uh, no matter how much you expect of yourself, it still doesn't mean it's going to happen. So I was able to, uh, the fact that I was able to, to do it and I was able to do it as a three and a half to one underdog in the, the, when I won my second world title, you know, it, it really made me more appreciative of it. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, you, you vacated the title to fight Ricky Hatton and that was just after, you know, he fought uh, Mayweather and lost. Did you feel like you maybe had the upper hand on him because you were obviously going up in levels and maybe he was maybe on the decline and maybe have his name on your record? Was that your thought at the time? Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like uh, I felt like you know there was it was a definitely a good time to get Hatton, but at the same time, um, you know things happened. You know, certainly I, I think if anybody watches that fight from a technical standpoint, you know, yeah, I definitely left a lot to be desired, but. If you really pay attention, I, I've left a lot to be desired, probably in the two fights before it as well. It wasn't a very good year for me. Um, I was defending the title by the skin of my teeth. And it really, the only excuse I have is, you know, uh, from a technical standpoint, you know, me and Buddy McGurk, my trainer, weren't really the same kind of uh, boxing minds, you know. But Buddy's a, a good trainer in his own right uh, for certain boxing styles. I have my own boxing style, and I'm a good fighter in my own right for, for my boxing style. But I suppose to put it in, in football analogies, um, Roberto Baggio was a terrific footballer, but he couldn't get along with guys like Marcelo Lippi and uh, Rico Saki, who were terrific coaches themselves, but they just couldn't really understand the technical aspect of a Roberto Baggio. It didn't make them incapable. It actually, they, they proved more than anything else that they were very capable, but it just, it wasn't on the same 
that same mindset as a guy like Bajo, who himself wouldn't be wrong either, because the, obviously his whole resume proves that he also was capable and, and is also right in his own way. So I feel like, you know, that was sort of the, um, the issue with, uh, with me in 2008, you know, um, I had hired McGirt, uh, more so a managerial decision, not my decision. And, you know, we had a good first year. We won a world championship, but really from a technical standpoint, the the technical stuff started to really impl implant itself very strongly in the second year. The first year, you're more so still working off of your own instincts and the only your own things. But the second year, the technical stuff started to really take effect and it wasn't really to complement my boxing style at all. And it just, it, it happens, you know, like I said, it doesn't mean somebody's incapable or the other guy's not capable or whatnot. It just means that, you know, stylistically the styles don't mesh and um i probably a regret that i have and again it's not a knock on the trainer because the trainer has done things be that trainer had done things before me and he did things after me that were very good as well so very very capable guy um as well as myself as a boxer i also accomplished things afterwards as well but it is a little bit of regret because um i really felt like Hatton was beatable at that time um while being inside the ring with him i wasn't overly awed even though the fight was one-sided it was just now the reaction timing and everything we hadn't trained for it and i had always been a reaction fighter and we hadn't trained that way so the reactions aren't just going to show up on fight night when well, you haven't trained that way unfortunately and and, if, and you can probably see the writing on the wall in the endo rematch and even the herman and gujo defense the other two fights before that and that year but you know it is what it is you live and you learn you know uh, after that i got rid of everybody management trainer <laughs> i just said you know what from now on i'm taking nobody's advice but myself and that's it that ended up treating you well, I think. Um, but just, yeah. if you had a maybe won the Hatton fight, there was, you know, a lot of talk with you, Pacquiao, Mayweather. Was there ever a fight in the pipeline had you beaten Hatton? I think I would have probably got the Pacquiao fight if I, I'd have, uh, I'd have uh, beaten Hatton. Um, you know, maybe that's a blessing in disguise that, you know, Hatton got the fight instead of me. You know, um, Pacquiao was uh, uh, blazing through everything at that time. Um, I've had my suspicions of why, but nobody wants to hear them. <laughs> People still don't want to hear them. But I was yeah, at a far, a far time, from normal. Yeah. yeah, that was a far from normal uh, situation. So, you know, maybe it was a blessing in disguise because I would have got in there and probably got completely wrecked, um, you know, the same way Ricky did, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, it's funny enough, after I beat Juan Diaz a year later, literally a year later, 13 months later, I beat Juan Diaz after I lost to, to uh, Rick, uh, Ricky Hatton. And uh, that Christmas, it was talks. I was My team was getting calls both from the Mayweather side and from the Pacquiao side. We were in talks with both sides. And neither fight happened. You know, uh, Pacquiao ended up fighting Joshua Kaladi and uh, Mayweather ended up fighting Shane Mosley. And I got the Khan fight, the Amir Khan fight instead. And uh, getting beat, you know, now you're no longer in the conversation for Pacquiao Mayweather because I got beat by Khan. So it, I was always around there or just one fight away from it. And it just always, you know, it never, it never, never panned out. But it's okay. You know, I, uh, I had a very busy career you know yeah <laughs> or a lot of guys that, the, the diaz I, uh the diaz one because you fought him twice and then you know the, yeah the, you know you were basically robbed and you came out and you said you know boxing is full of shit because of yeah, the yeah 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 because you know after the, the hatton fight i was i was not in a very politically connected situation i was looked at as a sort of a has-been a guy on the, on the decline so the only opportunity I got was as an opponent to uh, the sex world champion Juan Diaz in his hometown. They kind of just wanted to use me as a resume filler. And I could see the writing on the wall. I'm like, I'm just a resume filler for this guy. You know, I, I have to take this deal. So it's not a great deal. And uh, this is I could see this is basically a situation to get Diaz back on onto, uh, onto the course for another world championship because he had just lost 
And so I wanted a bit of a different situation. I had I wanted I would have still fought Diaz, but I wanted it under a bit of a different terms, mainly not having to go to Texas to fight him. But the only way I was going to do get any kind of fight of any kind of relative importance was this. So I decided to take it upon myself and said, you know what? People still look at me from the Hatton fight and they have the wrong view of me. If they visibly see me performing in a fight with Juan Diaz, even if I get robbed, they'll see that I'm physically capable of still being at, at a world-class level, you know, because right now they're writing me off. So ultimately, it was either don't fight anybody or fight Juan Diaz in Texas. So I decided to take the Juan Diaz fight in Texas, knowing full well that the possibility of some bad politics uh, may happen. And so I took that risk. And you know what? Despite coming up with the loss, and it was still worth it because I wound up getting a rematch out of it, winning it, and then putting myself back on the course. Yeah. And then, obviously, at that time, Khan was a big name in 2010. Mm-hmm. And you, you fought yeah. him. I think he said he's the fastest mm-hmm. puncher you ever, you ever faced. Yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Khan was content in his prime of blazing fast. A uh, uh, tall guy as well, uh, very good legs. Uh, a prime Amir is, uh, you know, you had to catch him. Some guys caught him and knocked him out. But otherwise, you know, you weren't going to run around against the guy. It was very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. You had to actually physically fight him. You couldn't box him. And if you notice, the guys that boxed with Khan had a lot of problems. You know, myself, uh, Devin Alexander, uh, Zab Judah, you know, the technical boxers. He was very, very difficult to fight from a technical standpoint. You, you, you probably, the best bet was to be physical with him. And then the physical guys had more give him more trouble guys like Maidana um, guys like Danny Garcia greatest press guy so on and so forth so stylistically it was a, a terrible matchup for me and, and Khan made me pay for it yeah um, because you know, I just remember him around that time and, and just his name was everywhere maybe because it was a lot yeah. of Sky Sports and <clears throat> Sky Box Office yeah, yeah. and all that time he, 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 was, he was he was he was Amir was the Brooklyn killer he, be, he beat me he beat uh, Dimitri Salida and he beat Louis Colazzo you know yeah I don't know why I should be smiling there or not because it's obviously against you, but uh, I suppose it's, yeah, it's, no, but it's okay. You know? Yeah, is that you look back? Everything, everything's part of your story, you know. Good yeah, in bed. True. Um, it's what pieces you together, I suppose. But did you change the trainer mm-hmm. after the can fight, or was it before that? The Diaz, or where was it? You you changed? No, it? no, no, no. Uh, I had Sharif Yunan for the for the con fight. Um, I uh, and I had Sharif Yunan after after the after the uh, Hatton fight. After the Hatton fight, I changed. I, I changed a big a lot of parts of my team. And uh, it was a it was a good run with Sharif Yunan. Actually, I wound up I wound up moving to LA after the con loss and changing my whole team again. But I wound up rejoining with Yunan later on when I fought uh, Muscatello for the EBU EU title uh, years later. So it was uh it was just a change more so for a change of pace after the con fight, uh, change of promoter, change of trainer, uh, change of uh, change of uh, geography. I moved to Los Angeles for a couple of years, tra- trained out there. I just needed a new start, but um. I couldn't. I can't say that from a, the technical perspective. Uh, Yunan wasn't a good trainer for me. He was, you know, we 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 meshed well. And like I said, I got back with him years later uh, for a fight or two. You know, and he was actually he actually was my uh, my trainer for the wall of bare knuckle fight as well. You know, but me and Yunan okay. still have a good relationship. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, then you you went. I just seen here looking at your record here. Uh, you went to fought Zinchenko then or Senchenko um over mm-hmm. in Ukraine. And I think he was looking upon you as the name to propel himself. And then you, you bashed him pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Chinchenko was looking to enter the U.S. He'd made about six or seven title defenses in Ukraine. Um, and I think they needed a uh, an American, big name, big American name to defend the title against just to bring this uh, foreign fighter to the U.S. with a bit of a fanfare. Uh, with a with a name they could sell on his resume to the American public, you know, as a guy who undefeated ex Olympian, who had beaten an ex world champion like Malinaji, as well as made you know several several defenses of this world championship, 
So they were looking to bring him in with some momentum. And um, again, like the Diaz fight, I was brought in just as fodder, really, just as a resume filler. And uh, I was able to turn it around. So every once in a while, you know, I, I, I would get brought into these situations and, uh, and get myself up for them and, and I'd, I'd pull off the upset. But, you know, it's certainly, uh, again, part of the story wasn't easy, but also um, things I'm proud of as well. Yeah, did that give you extra motivation then? Because you were basically being brought in as like you would say over in America, yeah. a tomato can, but I would say a tomato can. Yeah, I think that just that win in general gave my my career a second boost. You know, uh, it prolonged my career because even now as a two time world champion, even after you lose the title, as a two time world champion, people are going to once again look at you as a resume filler because now you've recently been a world champion again. So. You know, I was able to actually get some other money fights um, where I came up short. But because of the fact that I had, I had padded up my resume with another world championship, I was able to uh, get, get paid very well um, for, for a couple of other fights towards the end of my career, just on the basis of having a good resume. Yeah, well, you were in like at, at that time, you know, the, the, that was the division that I suppose a lot of people were looking at because you had like your Mayweather's, you had Pacquiao yourself. You know, an exciting time yeah. for, for that division mm -hmm. rather like yeah. now it's yeah, heavyweights yeah. again, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, every, everything goes through uh, through uh, phases, you know. A bit like football, and the way you said about leagues and exactly. stuff like that, Syria yep. and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. Talk, talk exactly. to me about the uh, Adrian Broner fight. Uh the Broner fight. You know, that's where I lost my second world championship. It was a uh, was a certainly a well, well promoted fight. I'll tell you what, though, it was the last fun promotion I had. I was always I was like being part of a trash talking promotion, but. Some guys didn't have the personality for it, you know, and and Broner was just had the personality for it. You know, he knows how to sell a fight well. I can always sell a fight well if you give me the platform for it. And I'll be honest, uh, me and Broner was, uh, I think we were perfect fodder for one another. And uh, we had very, very highly high TV ratings for that fight. As a matter of fact, I still think it's one of the uh, mistakes that boxing likes to do is shoot itself in the foot. Um, I don't understand how that rematch, rematch was never made. There was all the, all the ingredients were in there for a terrific rematch that would have sold instead they went and got Adrian beat his next fight against Maidana. And then two fights later, I lost to uh, I lost to Porter, and that was the end of all that. You know, We would have had a terrific rematch, terrific ratings. The uh, trash talk would have continued. There would have been a world championship still on the line because he took mine. Uh, like I said, all the ingredients there for probably probably for a trilogy, if I'm honest. But boxing's, boxing's a, funny, a funny game. Yeah, because I'm just looking there. Like is the, you, you mentioned Porter. You had uh, a great win against Judah as well. Um yeah, and you know that seems like one of your biggest or your best wins on paper because of the way he's gone. Yeah, out. yeah, with Zab, you know, yeah, with Zab, Zab was a a, a big win for me. Uh, that we were at time, it was sort of at a moment where they were trying to eliminate both of us. You know, we had both come off competitive losses, so somebody was going to continue uh, at a, at a at a high level. Somebody was going to fall off. You know, because the loser was going to have two losses in a row. So yeah, I'm glad it was it was Zab and not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nice to get one back, I suppose. Um, you said yeah. that after the Porter fight, you were going to retire. Uh, what made you reconsider? Um, I had a very, very bad concussion symptoms after the Porter fight, uh, probably for about eight, nine months, and I just didn't think I was. Uh, I didn't think they were going to go away. You know, I woke up with morning sickness, like every morning, like uh, like nausea, like I was pregnant or something. You know, it was weird. <laughs> and I thought, I thought there's no way I can take a punch if this is the way I, I randomly get. I randomly get this nausea. But after about eight, nine months, um, you know, it sort of started to dissipate. And uh, I started getting back in training. I started feeling like it was okay, you know. And that was it. But I'll be honest with you. I, I never took the same punch again after that. I, it was really, really, um, I don't know if it was psychological or whatnot. But, you know, you get almost like you get PTSD or something. 
I never, I, I, I didn't, my, my punch resistance suddenly dwindled after that. Even in fights that I won after that, I didn't, I never felt comfortable getting hit again. At least not the same one. Yeah, I suppose it, it catches up with you after a while. Like we, was, we were speaking about Amir Khan there. Yeah, you saw yeah, him against but, Kell Brook, like. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, you know, it's funny because uh, we fight with eight ounce gloves. You know, those are, those are the damaging shots. You know, I, I've. It's funny, as I was always a more aggressive fighter in sparring, right? You got a head, you know, and you got bigger gloves on. And I, that that never stopped even after, uh, the, even when I was training after the Porter fight. I was always in very, very physical, high-contact sparring sessions. But but in reality, you know, I would get to fight night, and, and it would just be different this time. You know, like it was just, you know, uh, no headgear, eight-ounce gloves, and it was just getting hit just felt different. You know, it just... Yeah, like I said, even in fights that I won, it just felt different now at that point with the small gloves. I, and again, I don't know if it was the PTSD because the small gloves or whatnot, but but um, even, um, you know, I had, I continued to spar very, very heavy in all my training camps after that. And aside from getting injured because of the age, you know, that was never an issue. But the uh, the the fights though, you know, the Porter fight, the Garcia fight, um, even fights I won, you know, I'll take a good shot and it would just it would still kind of rattle me you know, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's because probably you're getting that little bit older as well at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't know because mm -hmm. I, I haven't stepped in there. But like, when you see yeah, from, yeah. from other it fighters was, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't terrible. Like I said, I mean, in the in the Agenton fight, I was winning the fight until I got stopped. It was close, but I was winning. So I mean, it wasn't like I couldn't like compete at all, but. It was it was definitely different. I mean, I went I, 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 at one time in my life I was a world class fighter, so I certainly wasn't bad anymore. Yeah, so there's like a, a slight drop off, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because he's he, just uh, reading there, like yeah, you had a good showing against Danny Garcia, you lost that, but then you won the Brooklyn title against uh, Muscatello. Yeah, Muscatello won the EBU EU title, then I beat Gabriel Bracero with the Brooklyn title. That was uh that was like a, a little makeshift title they made for me and Zab and Bracero wanted to try to win it so we created like a little Derby style rivalry with Bracero as well you know but uh, all all good all respect uh, you know these are guys that I still you know get on well with Zab Bracero and all these guys you know they're all New York local guys yeah and um I suppose the infamous moments uh, before the Eggington fight you obviously called out Conor McGregor and said you'd punch the beard off him was that that was to get I suppose traction for yeah, uh, yeah, your fights yeah. is it? Yeah, I think um, I think it was before the Eggington fight. Yeah, I heard that McGregor was gonna come into boxing. So, yeah, like I usually license, like, yeah. yeah, it was like I usually like to do. I like to try to sell myself as uh, you know, put myself in these kind of moments. You know, as I figured, let me try to attract his attention. So maybe uh, maybe he'll fight. You know, um, at the time I took his foray into boxing seriously. Now I kind of realize he's just uh, he's more of a social media icon. He just looks for moments to sell himself very well. But at the time I thought. Obviously, I'm younger now. I, even guys like, you know, even other guys would do this. So, like, the YouTubers, you know, it's the same thing. They're not looking to actually be fighters. They're looking to just pick their moment, right? So, McGregor was the first guy to do that, you know. So, I was thinking, you know, this guy's going to be looking to test himself out. Let me put myself in the mix. Let me talk some fresh. And, uh, you know, it was all it was always about the Mayweather fight, I was, which is very smart, honestly. You got to go for that one. At least that one you can always be excused for losing because that's the that was the fighter of his generation, even if he was retired. Yeah, I suppose in around that time you 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 know you you got your European title fight that you really wanted. You know you sp you spoke about that at the start. Um, you know. To, yeah, to get I got that, the. I got represent the, Italy. Yeah, I, I, I was fighting Eggington, and I think if I would have beat Eggington, I would have got the shot at the European title, uh, which Eggington ended up beating me, and then he got the European title shot, and he won it. 
funny is Eggington has always been a bit of an overachiever himself. He was he ended up becoming the IBL uh, super welterweight champion recently, and then lost to Dennis Hogan, the Irish Australian. But you know, Eggington, I mean, that was a you know he's a good, good scrapper and always always in entertaining fights, and he 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 brings a fast pace. And at that age, I kind of wasn't really having it anymore, you know. Yeah, no, I was just saying there, like, you know, was it more difficult that you lost the fight or, you know, uh, the European title or, or the, kind of the end of your, your boxing career? I was I was disappointed to not get a shot at the European title because it was always something that, you know, I, I as, as a European-blooded person, I always wanted just for my own personal satisfaction. Obviously, I had been world champion already, so those those things, I, it wasn't really for the accomplishment. It was more so just for my own self, self-pride, you know, as, as a European to be, have, to be have a chance to win a European title. And that was just a point that I didn't get that. But also, when I lost the Eggington fight, I also knew like, okay, it's time to it's time to be done. You know, I, I can't can't compete the way I want to. You know, I can't do the things I want to. And and, and so, uh, you know, it kind of kind of falls apart. You, you decide it's better off to not do it anymore. Yeah, would, would would you not like now if you look back at your boxing career, you you should be proud like you've a two time world champion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't often think about it, but yeah, you know, I had a. It was a part of my life. You know, it was a, it was a good amount of years. You know, I was in boxing, so it's not, you know, people. It, it kind of, it's part of what defines me, right? I mean, uh, I was a boxer for, you know, I was in boxing, for, you know, twenty years of my life from a physical standpoint, and then, you know, even as an announcer to this day. So you know, certainly it's been a, something that has defined who I was, and who I am, and who I became, right? So I mean, yeah, I don't, you know, it's uh part of my story that's how i look at it yeah i think if, if you if you if you look at it like a lot of people want to be remembered as as a champion and want to be remembered as say a good um what did you call it a commentator there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so like people, yeah people want to be known as these things you, you're you're basically you've achieved it and, and you are still achieving it in terms of the um yeah the commentators yeah. So a lot of people say you're a top analyst in terms of boxing you know the way you you break it down and stuff like yeah. that a lot of people would say that about you yeah, yeah. I mean, listen. I just to be honest, from an analyst perspective, it's cool for me. You know, I I do enjoy it. I enjoy being an analyst. I enjoyed the time I had as a fighter. Um, but you know, I I'm, <laughs> I don't care what people view me as. To be honest, <laughs> I'm I'm 42 years old. You know, I'm just happy that I'm you know I'm able to live a comfortable life, and you know, I'm blessed that I've I've been able to accomplish what I've accomplished. That just led me to this point in my life. I I uh, you know I I don't really. I don't really look at it as about it. I'm appreciative if anybody has anything nice to say. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's very, very, you know, very uh, flattering. But I, uh, frankly, I don't really care. You know, I, I, I don't worry about that. I, I'm more so, um, I'm glad that I'm able to, you know, despite tough times that a lot of people in the world are living in, I'm, I'm able to still, uh, you know, live a, a happy life and a good life. You know? Yeah. Um, you Obviously, you spoke about McGregor there. And I suppose, I don't know how that, was it, you obviously went and sparred with him and then that created a whole lot of co- controversy on top of that. But yeah. like, that then, did that in some ways kind of get your name out there even more because he was having this kind yeah. of back and forth with you. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I think yeah. a lot of I Irish think, fans I had think... a lot of disdain towards you because he, he was so loved at the time. Now yeah. that's shifted since, but um, a lot of yeah. people kind of had disdain towards you. I, yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I'll tell you what. You know, at the time, I thought it was very strange. Everything that happened. Um, I got called. Um, I, I was friend. I'm, I was friends with Dean Burns, so I, in LA because he was a he's an Irish boxer, 
and his brother ended up working with Conor McGregor. I had no idea. So Dean, I hadn't spoken to in years because I hadn't, you know, I moved from LA years before. Ends up calling me randomly. I hadn't heard from Dean in a while. And said, hey, well, my brother wants to call you. Uh, can I have pass him your number? I'm like, sure. I didn't know what it. it was that his brother Jerry worked for Conor McGregor, you know? And so his brother contacted me and said they want to bring me in for sparring with Conor. And I thought, I thought, you know what? I had retired already, but I thought, you know what? I said, it could be an interesting, uh, an, an interesting tidbit to my life. You know, I always like to, you know, have these little stories, you know, where I look back on and say, hey, I was a part of that. I was a part of that. So I was like, yeah, it could be interesting, you know, just to be part of this camp. It'll be It'll be interesting to see, you know, I'll see, you know, if how uh, if Connor has a realistic chance to do this, you know, I'll get in there. I, I, I went in there thinking like, you know, it'll, it'll be a helpful situation for Connor. And at the same time, it'll also uh, be good. And honestly, I saw the weird, you know, people are really fickle. When I first got called, I was getting a lot of support on social media. Like oh, I was going to help Connor McGregor, you know, the Irish fans, everybody was happy, you know. Nobody knew that Connor had a more, you know, uh, sideways agenda for everything you know um so everybody was just kind of like hey yeah you know what paulie's gonna go help connor you know it'll be good i'm sure paulie will have a lot of answers to some questions him and his team might have and so i went there and when i got there it was you know honestly it was like it was like being a twilight zone <laughs> i mean these guys put us in some weird random house that i wouldn't put a crackhead in that house you know for a guy who was making 100 million dollars supposedly was making 100 million dollars um you know one of the cheapest guys i ever met in my life um, I didn't even, I didn't make a, a percent, a small percentage of the money he made just in that fight alone. I, and I never treated sparring partners like that, you know? Um, but again, it was his camp. I didn't, I, I didn't even have any complaints about that at the time. You know, we had a couple of good sparring sessions, um, maybe 10 days apart, two weeks apart, because I had to leave and go work a commentating job and then I had to come back. And then, uh, that's it. I mean, we had the, we had 12 rounds. I, if I'm honest, looking back now, and I think more people now are more apt to, you know, understand my side of the story. I think Connor thought he was getting me out of shape, so wanted to, you know, beat me up and maybe sell himself as uh, having a legitimate chance at Mayweather. And when he couldn't, when he still got beat up, despite me being out of shape, when he still got beat up, I think it really pissed him off. And um, he was wanted he wanted to get back at me somehow because I think a piece of him wanted to get was still holding a grudge from the trash talk I'd had. But at the time, that wasn't even personal. That had been just to sell a possible fight with me and him. So I think he had some an agenda to sell the fight, also an agenda that he thought he was going to teach me a lesson. Um, cause he was going to catch me out of shape and it's not, I tell you what, it's not, it's not that difficult when you're, when a guy is not in shape to make sure he doesn't go 12 rounds. You just got to push the pace just a little bit. But that's why I told him he had no balls. He had no balls in the sparring. He hadn't he ever had any balls in his career, you know, because when all you have, to, yes, I'm better than you at boxing. And, but if you just force me to work hard for about five, six rounds, I won't be able to do 12 rounds. I'm not in shape for it. You know, so if you just, even if it means you're getting the, the worst of the sparring for the first five, six rounds, but you push it as hard as you can and you make me work hard, you're going to stop me because we were supposed to do 12 rounds that day. But he just couldn't get brave enough to push the pace like that. So I was able to actually do the full 12 rounds. And so that in itself tells you who was in control of things. Because if I'm out of shape and I actually get beat up the way he sold it, there's no way I can go 12 rounds. You know, you're, you're not going to survive that. You're already out of shape. And then you, the guy's beating you up. How can you possibly go 12 rounds? You know what I'm saying? How can you possibly do that? You know? So, you know, the fact that I went 12 rounds when I hadn't barely stepped in a gym in four months probably should have, uh, a, a person with common sense should have understood how pitiful his boxing was, was going to be in the Mayweather fight. Then Mayweather carried him. I mean, I've never seen Mayweather fight like that in my life where he just kind of put his hands up and just walked forward for, for what, about 10 rounds before he finally decided to knock him out. 
was a good sell. It was a terrific sell. I mean, Connor's a great salesman. But you, um, you, but, you were um, a huge part of that too. Like, like you were like a. Of course, if you were to put yeah, it in WWE I, terms, you were like was, an, another kind of was, side to it. I was more flabbergasted. You know, like how people fell for it. I was like, wow, it's like it's crazy. You know, but but you know, people never surprise you. They never fail to surprise you. So, because like I said, I got support when I was first announced going to the camp. You know, so then I couldn't believe like like these people. I mean, Connor could take a shit on these people's front porch and they'd still give him a hug and kiss if they saw him. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, yeah. like they, it was just about, Con- it was just about then. being a fan of Connor McGregor. It was just a fan of being a Connor McGregor, of Connor McGregor. It wasn't really anything else. You know what I mean? Like, so it wasn't a matter of Connor was right or wrong. It was just always back Connor no matter what. And that's sort of what I realized it, it became for those fans. So I was like, all right, you know, you live and you learn, really. I mean, for me, I think, you know, five years on, nobody's ever seen more than five or six seconds of that highlight sparring. And even now, even those five or six seconds are different parts cut together. You couldn't even find five, six seconds consecutively. But I think more people have some common sense now than they did before about that sparring and kind of know what happened, especially what he's done since that he, you know, he, can, he can't win a fight. And But he's still a terrific salesman. I tell you, I've never seen, I've never, I've never seen a punching bag sell, being sold so well in my life. I mean, yeah. We've got Everlast catalogs. We've got Grant catalogs. We've got all Kalito Reyes. I mean, but the best punching bag that you can ever sell, I mean, is, is Conor McGregor. That is unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I still, I'm still in awe how, how that's possible. But yeah, that's how it comes down to. <laughs> and but, then, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's just I, I just I remember just how much you were actually involved um on the side thing because it was just show after show after show press conference after press conference after press conference yeah. and i know obviously the one yeah. that you turned up at and you had to go at you um yeah and i didn't and it's funny because even that one wasn't planned i was working for sky sports and i was working for showtime and i had to cover the press i had to cover the press event and now i was like i've got to figure out what he's saying so i've got to be kind of close so that when we discuss this on the air i know what he said so that we can discuss his thoughts going into fight week and so people think like I was stalking it. No, I was there working. I had to hear what he was telling the media. I wasn't going to ask him a question, but I had to listen to what he was saying. So that way there were some talking points when I was on the air. And instead, you know, we ended up getting into a situation with him and his manager. And then Connor got there. And before, you know, with there's all cameras there. Now I can't, now I have to say something, you know. So I, I the first thing that came to my mind was to say what I was telling him when we were sparring, you know, that he, he, he was never going to have the balls to do any to, to ever take a chance on anything, you know. And uh, sure enough, that's how it went up, you know. Yeah. And, and so... That, that obviously that blew over. I know you were trying to get a fight with him after Mayweather and stuff like that. Like he went back to to UFC at that point then, um, but then you ended up with with Artem fighting Artem. Yeah, but yeah, and I think and I think the Artem fight was uh, interesting because Artem. I think you know that that fight came my way because of the McGregor situation. So it ended up getting me an extra payday. You know, they they it paid me rather well for that fight. You know, I broke my hand. I still thought I won the fight. I think I think from a technical standpoint, I'll be honest with you. Nobody in the arena thought thought Artem won the fight. I mean, I had my friends that were in the arena, and they were they were the people that bet them bet Artem were getting ready to pay them. You know, uh, as we waited for the decision. You know, so I'll be honest. Everybody can talk trash now. They're just talking trash because I didn't get the decision, but. You know, they know no who won that fight. You know, uh, uh, they. I mean, and I fought the fight with one hand for three out of five rounds. I broke my hand around two. I, I, I basically, I had to make it more technical than I wanted to, but I still made it very technical, even one-handed. And I felt, still felt, you know, it was, uh, it was clear who won the fight. But and then they, like I said, they know that too. Nobody in that arena thought Artem won the fight until they announced it. You know, I, I remember that arena, the way it was, and everything else, and 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 even what the people were telling me after. Nobody thought that that Artem won that fight. Now he won it, so. You know, everybody will talk and, and, and say their opinion. But when it happened, when they're waiting for the decision, there wasn't a person on earth that thought Artem won that fight. 
Yeah, well, I I remember watching it at like three or four in the morning. Absolutely hammered yeah. watching it. Um, actually yeah. watching the house down the road. But anyway, um, so I was just kind of boozing and watching it. And obviously, at that stage, you just want to see two people fighting. You know what I mean? And obviously, yeah. you both did that, That's so it. it was entertaining at the same time. You know, um, just yeah, on, yeah. just on that though, like obviously you've seen since that himself and uh, Connor are now kind of feuding over the whiskey. Are you surprised by that yeah, at all? No, and, and, and what's your relationship like with Art? Yeah. Do, do you have as much disdain maybe as you would for Connor? No, no, no. Me and Artem honestly never said anything again. I told Artem after I said, hey, man, listen, it's not personal. You know, just, uh, you know, let's not lie about what happened. You know, like, that's it. You know, you were there that day. You know, like, let's, uh, let's leave it at what it is. Especially now we got in there. We settled it. We fought each other. I said, but, you know, let, let, let it, uh, I said, let, let, let things be. Don't continue to back Connor's lie, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, no problem." And, and he, honestly, I got to respect on him. He kept his word. Never discussed the, never talked about the McGregor sparring again. He didn't want to go against Connor, and then say that I beat up Connor because he knows I did. He knows I beat up Connor. He was there, but at the same time, he stopped lying about it. You know, so I give him, I give him that respect about it. He stopped lying about it, and he never, he never brought it up again. So definitely, uh, you know, that was, that was worth the respect for sure. Yeah, because at the moment uh, he's suing Connor for the whiskey for uh, basically he promised him a, a percentage of it or something. That's the claim. Yeah, that's what and I heard. Uh, I heard they had a, I heard they had the, their uh, their issues, man. I heard yeah. they had their, I don't know. I said I don't. I don't get involved in that. But I'll be honest. I don't think Connor probably has any true friends. I don't think. I don't think there's anybody that actually cares much for Connor. I think people want to be around the star that is Connor. Hey man, if that if that if that's fine with him, uh, as long as he's happy, you know. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't mush him bad or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, if that's if that's what makes you happy, that you know. But I I, I do think that I don't know, man. I'm 42 years old, maybe because I'm older. I I do think that there is comes a point in your life where you just kind of like being away from it all, and 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 like having being around your people that are going to be real around you and true around you. And I don't know that Connor can ever afford to have that. I think Connor will always be chasing stardom's a bigger piece of the stardom pie because I think that's the only thing that motivates him and that is the only thing that keeps him happy. And um, like I said, I, I, it's not for me, but if it's for him, okay, you know. But I don't think he'll ever have any true friends, you know, because uh, I think Con uh, Artem was a very loyal friend to him. And um, you know, I don't like I said, I don't, I'm not saying it's one way or the other, but you're not even capable of having you know keeping anybody around you that actually will uh will stay that loyal i mean i i was in the camp with him his trainers were basically just blowing him you know like uh, they, they, those guys weren't actually get, telling him the truth i mean owen roddy and uh and kavanaugh they were just cheerleaders and there was there was nobody actually telling the guy the truth there was nobody actually doing anything uh worthwhile for him then even on fight night they showed up they were cool in the corner completely unprepared um it was you know they're just he's just got a bunch of yes men around him so if that makes him happy if that's what keeps his uh self-confidence of it, you know, it's good for him. You know, it, it wouldn't be for me, but it's, it's good for him, you know? Um, and people are going to say, Oh, you're not, you know, he does, he has the money you have. I don't count other people's money. You know, I, I don't, I don't understand how anybody counts anybody's money. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't see the need for that, but I'm, you know, if we're talking about finances, I'm very, very comfortable and I'm good. And so I don't, I don't need to be worth, uh, I don't need a hundred million dollars a year. I don't need any of that. You know, I just need my life and, and my life to be comfortable. And, and that's what makes me happy. And that's what makes me, settled you know and then and, and at this point in my life that's what i prefer to be uh but but i i think 
Connor the way he is. And like I said, maybe he likes that. But I don't think he'll ever be able to have any real friends or anybody real around him. But maybe that, he doesn't need that. Maybe he just, as long as he's chasing stardom and he's pushing himself in, in, in ways for the guest stardom, whichever way that comes, even if it comes to be a punching bag, which he, he basically made his living being a punching bag the past five years. Um, if that makes him happy, then, then it's fine with me. <laughs> it's his life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose just from your own point of view, then like obviously your story has been set, but... I wouldn't say it's over. You're still a very young man in terms of moderate terms, but what's next for you? Are you just going to continue being an analyst? Would you go into coaching of any kind or what's, what's. No, no, no. I, listen, I, I work in the, as an analyst. I'm, um, you know, I'm just trying to um, just honestly, man, I've just, I'm trying to, you know, be a little more spiritual in my life. Uh, I see the way the world is. And even though I'm comfortable, I see that a lot of people in the world are not comfortable and it's getting very, a lot harder for people in the world. And so, I I, uh, I I do have a belief that you know, God exists. There's got to be something. It's got to happen in the world. You know, I don't. I'm I'm not gonna get all preachy, but I'm certainly uh, uh certainly been more curious about the spiritual aspect of things uh, recently, and so and I and I plan to continue to explore that more um, in my personal life. As far as a professional life is concerned, hey man, I'm working, <laughs> so it's good. You know, I work with ProBox TV. They're they're a good company. I work with BYB Bernuckle. They're a fun company to work for. And uh, you know uh, everything in between, so it'll, it'll be good. And then, just uh, in your in your own life, then it will you be, you know, would you get over to much Serie A games? Who who would be your team now um, that you support? Um, yeah, I, I still follow the Serie A. Uh, I uh, I actually watched Friday's game. I didn't get to watch uh, much of yesterday, but uh, Friday's game of Napoli smashed you, and that was unbelievable. Five one, five one, yeah, um, yeah, I. I grew up a Juventus fan. My father got me a Juventus kit when I was a little kid. Like, I was about five years old in Italy. So, I liked Juventus from then on. Then when I won my first world championship in 2007, AC Milan invited me to Milanello. And uh, that was the Champions League winning side. I, I came Ooh, in November. And in May, they, in, May, in May, they just beaten Liverpool in the Champions League. So, I, I went there six months later. So, I was <laughs> I was, I was, was hanging out uh, in Milanello for a week. That uh, was a really cool experience. So, I started rooting for Milan after that. And Zaghi. Because, uh, you know, because you ate, yeah, Zaghi. Yeah, and Zaghi too that day. Yeah, uh, they had Nesta. They had a, it was a, what a team, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, um, Maldini was there. Everything. So Royal it was, um, it was a really. Ancelotti was manager when he. Yeah, Ancelotti was manager, and Leonardo was the was the assistant coach. Yep, Leonardo was his. Yep, absolutely. You got a good memory. And um, so that was a fun uh, experience, and I so I saw the room from Milan after that. Uh, but now I'll be honest with you, especially when they tried that Super League thing, that kind of turned me off. All these elite teams started getting that Super League thing. You know what I root for now, man. I like Napoli. I like yeah. to. I, they're a southern team, you know. Like I, I'm not gonna say I, I I root for them hardcore. Like I don't have a particular team, particular team I root for hardcore unless it's the Italian national team. But um, my, my, in Serie A, like honestly, if Napoli wins, I'll be happy. One thing I do root for though, I root for any Serie A team in Europe. Any Serie A team. I, I don't have a, a like. I'm not one of these people where like if you're a Milan fan, you don't root for Inter even in Europe or or vice versa or like or like even they do like they do in uh in in England where the Man City team. Okay, won't root for a Man United fan, even won't root for Man United, even in Europe. I think any Italian team that does well in Europe is great for the league, and I want the league to do well uh, because I feel like it's fallen off a lot in my lifetime. And so uh, uh, I root for any Serie A team in, in European competitions. And within within Italy, I probably have a little bit of a little bit of a of a, of a bias for Napoli because they're a southern team. But otherwise, I enjoy watching the league, and it's fun. Well, I think they came so close to winning the league in previous years and Juventus were so strong that it'd be nice to see them win the yeah. league. And obviously, with Diego Maradona passing away as well, is that kind of, 
Team yeah, yeah. To see yeah. And, they name, and they named they, they named the stadium. They used to call it the San Paulo, and now it's the Diego Maradona Stadium. So it's uh, it'll be a good uh, it's it'll be good if they honestly I think they're very good this year. Honestly, they they they, they uh, we'll see. I, I I think they can compete for the Champions League as well. So it's a good team. Yeah, because they beat Liverpool. They beat them like four one. Yeah, they Liverpool. They beat Ajax. There, they've got a they they're on a good little run. We'll see. Yeah, see how it plays out. Well, I I, I actually quite like Napoli, but I I when I was yeah. About, but around that time when Inzaghi scored the two goals, um, obviously I was a big Everton <laughs> fan and uh, seeing Liverpool. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched Istanbul two <laughs> years before that to see to see. I was total, total. They robbed that game. How do you, you know, like that's crazy. How do you give that penalty kick, man? How do you give that penalty, that that third goal? But got to didn't touch Gerard. He didn't touch him, man. How let's, do you guys the referee call that in a Champions League final? In a Champions League final. Yeah. Oh man, I've been three nil up as well though to give it away. But anyway, um, got back then the two years later, and what a team that was that AC Milan team. Yeah, Inzaghi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then you had at the back, Clarence, had, Clarence Seedorf was there. Inesta, Clarence Seedorf. Uh, I think Dita was the keeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a. Uh, uh, it's funny because when I was there, I met Brazilian Ronaldo too. He was there too, oh, and I met him yeah. six months later, and they just picked him up at the end of his career. Um, what's he yeah, like good, he uh, was the ghost Pirlo was there um, yeah, was yeah yeah no Ronaldo dude Brazilian Ronaldo had a prime that was unbelievable that guy was bullet speed controlled the ball physically strong I mean one of maybe the best finishes that I've seen in my life that I've watched like that I could say in my opinion are the best finishes and I've seen terrific, terrific footballers uh, Mar- Marco Van Basten and Ronaldo from Brazil I mean killer finishers what I mean body killer killer finishers Batistuta too, unbelievable. Uh, Batistuta, uh, 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 Christian Vieri for a little bit was a killer, killer finisher as well. Uh, where he just he's, he bury bar- guys. Crespo, like I said, I've seen a lot of great players, but the two guys, my two guys that I say, wow, those. I mean, they they kill keep- keepers. I mean, keepers are dead if they if they if those guys are, are presented in front of them. Van Basten and and uh, and uh, Ronaldo. Oh, sick. I just missed out on Platini because Platini's final year was in 87. I literally just missed out on him because I, I started watching in 88. So I can't judge Michel Platini uh, for this. But well, he came uh, Van Basten was there. Van Basten got there right, I think, the second season I started watching. He, he was a monster. I tell you what, Syria had everybody. Had Maradona at that time. Had so many good players. Van Basten was the scariest one. When I started watching Syria, Van Basten was the scariest guy in the league. I'm telling you. He was sick, sick. Was it that? Was it AC Milan? He scored that volley, you know, the, from the from the angle. Yeah, or was that the volley? That was the, that was the European Cup final against the USSR. That was in 1988 European Cup final, and they had actually lost in the group stage to the USSR earlier in the tournament. They, they the finalists USSR and Holland had been in the same group earlier in the tournament, which which ironically weirdly happens sometimes with the European Cup a lot. You know, uh, it happened. Uh, it happened again in '96 with uh, Germany and the Czech Republic. They had been in the same group. But, um, yeah, USSR uh, uh, beat Holland in the group stage, and then Holland beat them in the final. And that was a sick goal by Van Basten. But then what he did in Serie A, I saw him do some crazy things in Serie A, man. I mean, that, he was such a great finisher. Tell you the truth, I don't think that everybody ever saw the best of Van Basten. He was, had a lot of injuries, and he had to retire early. But even the last couple of years of his career was already kind of done. Sick, sick player. Honestly, the best finisher, him and then Ronaldo, the best finishers I've seen in my life. And I've seen some terrific, terrific I've, I've been blessed enough to, to have watched Serie A in its prime years. And uh, unfortunately, Kirsten up there watched it, uh, watched it fall apart too. But we'll see, see how it goes. There's still room for us. I love the league. Yeah, well, do, yeah. If, I don't know if you've ever got a chance, but if you if you have, or you haven't uh, seen Ronaldo's documentary. It's on the zone. Um, there's a, uh, it's called Phenomenal. The the, the, port, the Portuguese Ronaldo or the Brazilian Ronaldo? Oh no, the Brazilian one. 
It's uh, oh, I haven't seen one. I haven't seen that. I saw the Portuguese Ronaldo ones. I haven't seen the Brazilian one. I'll, it's, I'll, I'll it's have to check it out. It's unbelievable because it's all about his knee injury and how he battled to come back from yeah. that. And there's all of it that you yeah. don't, you don't really see. Is, is a lot of his France '98. Yeah, you know, behind the scenes, a lot of it's really, really good. Yeah, really. that's a thing. You know, people don't consider the injuries. You know, um, you know, they don't like. Honestly, my favorite player ever is Roberto Baggio, and he had two very bad knee injuries. Knee injuries, very, very bad surgeries. You know, and then Ronaldo too. Brazilian Ronaldo came back from a blown. Out knee. I mean, you know, you've got injuries that are that that kill careers. Van Basten with his ankle. You know, uh, you know, you you can you imagine how great some of the players we've seen and how much more amazing they would have been if it wasn't for injury injury problems. I mean, those are I just named three guys that were already phenomenal, but without the injuries, might be. You know, everybody on this planet would know who they are. You know, like that's how that's how good those guys are. That's how good men. That's how, that's the potential those guys had. They still had terrific careers, but they 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 to me they didn't get the max out of it because of the injuries. Terrific, terrific players. Yeah, well, I'm just going to finish it off by asking you your thoughts on the World Cup uh, and Messi. Um, um, you know, were you happy for him to, to finish it the way he did? I was, listen, it, was, it was nice to see Messi win a World Cup, but, you know, I, I don't, I, everybody's making like, oh, it was a Messi World Cup. Messi got his World Cup. But honestly, man, it wasn't like when Maradona uh, wins the World Cup where it's literally him and you don't win it without him. Like, honestly, Argentina are, are such a good team. And it's not like Messi took control of the World Cup. Yeah, he had some assists. He had some goals. Yes, absolutely. But it wasn't a Messi-centric World Cup. Argentina were a good team. And yes, Messi was an intricate part of the team. But it wasn't a Messi-centric World Cup. Like, in 1986 World Cup, that's a Maradona World Cup. Like, without Maradona, Argentina doesn't do anything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even in 1990, to be honest with you, even though Maradona didn't score in the 90 World Cup, Maradona was an intricate part of a lot of the, the, a lot of what they did. You know, the, the goal against Brazil, where where he basically went through the team and then passed off the Canadia. Uh, uh, some of the, you know, there were they, they were things he was doing in, in in 90 that that were very very intricate part of the team. Messi did some nice things, but it wasn't like. Oh my goodness! Without Messi, would they have won? I don't know, man. I'll be honest with you. The, the Copa America final, Di Maria scored uh, the year before, and and even in this in this final, yeah, he got the penalty kick. Um, but again, I mean, it was. I think Di Maria scored in this final too, yeah, right? I think Di Maria did, scored in the World Cup final as well. Yeah, yeah Di Maria is a clutch player. I tell you, Di Maria is a clutch player. That guy shows up. You know, Messi's a good player. Don't get me wrong. I, I was happy to see him win, but I I, I don't know, man. I'm a Maradona guy. I'm a Maradona guy. So, uh, but I guess if you couldn't tell, I just outright said I'm, I'm a Diego Maradona guy. Yeah, I can I can tell by the boys. But there's reasons, there's reasons, and there's obviously levels to that. Obviously, with the it's mm -hmm. the that Italian bias, the fact that he went to Syria and then he ripped it up yeah. with Napoli, which I don't think Messi would do with a with a yeah, I don't know, like yeah, a Fiorentina. And he, like now, and, he was, and he was playing when they would kick your knee off if you tried to dribble, guys. You know, they would literally kick your knee off your body. You know what I mean? Like, and that, and you wouldn't even get call, called for a foul. You know, like it was great. Different different times. Honestly, you have to appreciate all the entertainers we've got to watch, including oh, yeah. the modern guys like Ronaldo, Ronaldo and Messi. Uh, I'm just glad I've got to watch through different generations. You know, and and uh, the game changes, but it's it's it remains entertaining. That's what I'm happy for. Yeah, but I think with. Uh... You know, that's the beauty of football is the opinions. Like you'd probably say in boxing too, you, you, you know, you have these opinions yeah. and you can respect people's opinions as, as to why they think someone is better. Like for me, mm -hmm. Messi's the best I've ever witnessed playing. But in saying that, if I think if Ronaldo hadn't got those injuries, Brazilian Ronaldo, he possibly, and I was lucky enough to see both of them play and I've seen Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo play. So I've been lucky in that sense. Um, yeah. You know, so... 
yeah, just Messi. Messi would be for me, and and I think if if he's not in that Argentina team, I I don't think they win that World Cup. I I know you're saying that Maradona was the main yeah. reason that they won it before, but I don't think that without Messi leading that team. No, no, I wouldn't say he, they would have won it without him either. But I I also think like without a Di Maria, they also won't win the World Cup. Like, you like you like well Maradona in '86. It's Maradona setting up Borussia. Maradona was a great player, but it's also when you talk about the best player ever, you're talking about like a number. 10, you got to compare number 10 separately than anybody else, right? Because a number 10 is a creator as well as a goal scorer. Then you've got like straight up goal scorers, like, num- like number nines, like like Van Basten, like uh, like Ronaldo, uh, yeah. Br- Brazilian Ronaldo. I think you have to rate those guys separately because otherwise it just becomes a a, a a conversation of what position do you like best, right? Because you call it the best number 10s. You know, you think of guys like Maradona for sure, you know, Roberto Baggio. Um, in Italy, we had Totti recently. Um, you've got um, Del Piero. Del Piero, I, I think he's a bit overrated, but he's a good player. I think Del Piero is a bit overrated, honestly. I, I think he's a solid player, but I don't think he goes down as like I don't think he goes down in the conversation with Baggio or even a Totti. Um, a lot of his goals were scored when when they were match fixing, and and internationally, he never really was a a standout player internationally. So he's a solid player, but I wouldn't like put him in the, in the same conversation with You're those right, guys. Yeah, I mean, in the 06 World Cup, he was he again. He was part of a, of, of of an overall squad. He scored uh, in the 121st minute against against uh, uh, Germany. But other than that, you know, he was just part of the squad. And and you know what? He he made his penalty in the final. Up here was always a good penalty kick taker. Um, but I don't know. I mean, no, he's not the level. You know, of I also I also that. remember I also remember him missing a, a completely empty net in this about the 70th minute of the European Cup final in 2000, which I it's hard to forgive because if you go up two 0 in that game in the 70th minute, you've you've just buried the European Cup. Instead, he missed basically an empty net, and then uh, Wilthor ties the game in the 94th minute, and then we uh, we end up losing in a golden goal uh, from Trezeguet. Um, you know, so I, I mean, there's things that you know. Like I said, Piero was an overall solid player, but I just can't, I can't rate him in the same conversation as some guys. Like, are you give me a Roberto Baggio, I'm gonna give you like the same conversation. He belongs in the same conversation as a Maradona, as a Cruyff, uh, um, as, as those kind of guys. You know, on Zidane. Zidane as well, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. Zidane is sick, sick, unbelievable. And again, I was fortunate enough to watch him in Serie A too because he played at Juve for a few years. Yeah. I mean, so I would watch him on a weekly basis. A sick, sick player. What a what a talent. Honestly, he's not talked about enough. Yeah, that guy's unbelievable. He was he him and him and Ronaldo. I started watching football at the France '98 World Cup, and obviously mm-hmm. him and uh, Ronaldo and Zidane in that World Cup. Were, I mean, yeah. you had a Serie A where they had Zidane at Juve and Ronaldo at Inter, and those were probably the two best teams in the world at that time, and they were battling for the Serie A title. I mean, I was watching what a league I was watching. You know, it was crazy. It was like it was just Henri it was just like a treat every week as well at the time. Henri, yeah, but Henri, Henri was sort of a bust at Juventus. Not that he was not worthy, but he, it, it, the system again. Talking about the system with coaching, yeah. it didn't work well for Henri. I read him. I, it's funny, two guys that were in Serie A that it didn't really work out system wise, but they're terrific players. Patrick Clivert and Anthony Henri didn't really have a great Serie A career, but they were unbelievable everywhere else they played, and they were unbelievable players. So again, it's one of those things that I said earlier in the conversation about sometimes you just got to you don't mesh well with the style, with the coach, all this other stuff. You know, yeah. terrific players, but they weren't they didn't really stand out in, in the Serie A. Yeah, but you can uh, fitting in and stuff like that as well. Um, and two of my favorite players, by the way, Clivert and, and and Henri were two of my the most fun players to watch. You know, I loved Clivert in that uh, ninety eight yeah. World Cup for Holland. He was brilliant. And then you had players yeah, like Bergkamp and all. So so many good footballers, mm-hmm. man. I could sit here and talk all day. About yeah, 
But uh, I am conscious I of your time because I've had you there for an hour yeah. twenty minutes. So, Paulie, I suppose mm-hmm. we, we'll leave it there and I'll let you get on with your day. I just want to say thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Um, if you had said to me before Christmas that we were going to have you on, I wouldn't have believed you. So, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. My pleasure, man. You have a good one. All right. Good all conversation. Right. Good chat. I'll speak to you soon. Take all care, right. man. Thank you. Cheers.